Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my longtime friend, teammate, roommate, best buddy, Jens Vogt. Jens, what's going on, buddy? Not too much. Um, I realized I didn't do enough sport last year, so I'm going to change that. And I have been pretty active since the 1st of January. Hopefully, unlike most New Year's resolutions, this one is going to last all year long. And I started, well, a little bit last year, I started a new project. Um, apparently, from where I live in Berlin, in the middle of Europe, about 15 kilometers away, there have been wolf sightings, right? So there's this highway ring around Berlin, and now the first uh, pair of wolves with four cups are inside the highway ring. There's certain underpasses or overpasses for animals. And um, I know this area very well where they are. It's it's a fenced-off area, uh, wildlife uh, uh, protection. And so now I try to do a lot of mountain biking or cyclocross riding around that fence and just try, just by the law of averages, there must be one day a wolf crossing my path. And I mean, I just can't wait for that moment to see the wolf. That doesn't surprise me. Um, to our listeners that that don't know, when we were on Credit Agricole back in the day, Jens had a time trial helmet with a wolf painted on it. So is the wolf your spirit animal, Jensy? I would think so, to be honest. Um, I always felt um, attached to it. Even my wife uh, gave me a few books uh, about uh, wolves. Um, yeah, still remember uh, um, the Jack London novels about uh, White Fang. Um, so, yeah, I guess I always had a big interest in nature and wildlife, but especially in wolves. Cool, cool. Yeah, not much uh, new for me. I mean, I have to admit this uh, this new year got off to a little bit of a sluggish start. Um, hopefully, it'll, hopefully, it'll get better. Uh, the bad news is my Denver Broncos didn't even come close to making the NFL playoffs. Um, I say that because our, our producer, Mark Payne, is a huge 49er fan, and they just squeaked their way into the playoffs yesterday. So uh, shout out to to Mark and the San Francisco 49ers, although um, it pains me to say that the Broncos will be at home again in January and February. But anyway... On to our show. This week, we have a one of our longest-term uh, friends since... I've known him since 1997. Same with Yenzi. He's just a great person. Uh, came into the sport with amazing talent. Um, you know, got caught up in some things, paid his retribution, came back to the sport as one of the best team captains and... and positive influencers in the sport ever since. Please sit back and listen to our great conversation with Mr. David Miller. Okay, everyone. Welcome back to Bobby and Jens. Today, we have one of our oldest, best, coolest friends on the planet, Mr. David Miller. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bobby. And thank you, Jens. I, I've seen you guys doing this and I was I was starting to get very insecure that you hadn't asked me before. So 
I'm very honored to be on it. Thank you. You, you know, it's kind of funny. We were just talking about this before you came on. Um, you know, we try to think about current athletes and this and that and the other thing. And then we like just totally forget like our friends that are like right in front of us. So you are one of those guys. And um, man, I mean, our listeners cannot see you, but um, is that a real bookcase with all those books behind you, or is that a screensaver? <laughs> no, it goes up. It goes for ages. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's bikes on top. Look at you. Yeah. No, this is this is uh, probably one of the things. Well, we we lived together when I was nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, and the only thing I had through all my different travels were my books, and I I kept all my books in boxes through everywhere, and from Hong Kong to. UK to France to the different houses and I my plan with my life had always been that one day I'd get to a house where I could put all the boxes all the books out the boxes onto shelves and so this is where I am now and I'm in Girona um about what is 100 k's north of north west of Barcelona and uh we live in a lovely house a farmhouse and I've got my my study my office which is filled with all those books from all my travels and this is that's where I am sitting right now. Yeah, well, let's start there. I mean, you know, so yeah, we met. I remember the first day that we met was the Kofidi service course in the winter. <laughs> uh, actually, it's probably January of 1997. And we walk in, and there's this really young kid that speaks perfect English. And I had just signed for a French team. So I was just like, what is this guy like a mechanic or something like that? He's too young to be a writer. You know, is he a translator? whatnot? But um, turned out that you were the young gun, you know, neo pro on the team. And we, you know, moved to Nice and we, we got that apartment together. And, you know, I learned through osmosis and living with you, like your story, but tell us a little bit about how you got into cycling. And, you know, I remember the Hong Kong stories, but like, yeah, let's let's start from from scratch. I mean, you were born in Malta for for goodness sakes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was going to just jump in because I can still remember vividly uh, standing in that warehouse in Lille and and meeting you and the crew. We'll get back to that one. Um, I was born in Malta. My, I'm Scottish, um, but uh, I was kind of old school 20th century where you had military bases scattered around the world and so my dad um, was a wing commander of the Royal Air Force he was a and we bounced around but I was born in Malta when I was a flight lieutenant flying Nimrods and then lived in the north of Scotland then the south of England then my parents got divorced and I went with my dad to Hong Kong so I, I, I've lived in six different countries but my formative years were I'd say my formative years, my, I consider my home to be Hong Kong, um, yet I consider myself to be Scottish. So, and, yeah, and France is where my heart, a part of my, a part of my heart remains in France because I loved France, but it's kind of gone now. So, yeah, I've had a, a, a lovely, interesting life so when you were living in all these different countries living in different places where and how did you pick up the bike or what crossed your mind to go hey i'm not gonna play soccer i'm gonna pick up the bike uh, how did that happen uh, i probably like you jens and and you bobby it was just i wasn't i think in our generation of cyclists it was something we weren't team players 
we we were kind of anti-authoritarian we were anti-system and the the thing i loved when i was young was doing my own thing and it was all the alternative sports and i saw when i saw you guys had done podcasts with tony hawk it was like that was kind of those are my icons tony hawk all these random kind of these alternative sports that ended up becoming kind of what we know now but yeah so cycling for me i i grew up in the 1980s when bmxing was kind of on on vogue then mountain biking and in hong kong uh mountain biking was my escape and then i rode with some dudes and went to a, a mountain bike race and i was 14 just had no clue and there were some guys there that said god you got to get on a road bike and i was like what i'm not gonna do that i don't don't want to do that i don't want to sh- shave my legs or or wear lycra and then they sh- they introduced me they gave me magazines they like velo news i used to have to go to a shop in Moncock, which is the most densely square densely populated square kilometer in the world to a magazine shop and get velo news which is wrapped in plastic and without knowing it bobby you were probably in there tour de pont and those things with lance and kind of that whole generation and they, they used to be my Bibles. I used to treasure those Vela newses I get and then I get VHS tapes. And I fell in love with this idea of this this sport that no one else knew about. And I was like, I wanna do that. That's cool. They race up mountains, they do three week long events there. They get jerseys instead of trophies. Uh, and so yeah, cycling kinda of, kinda of became my my romantic idea of, of what I wanted to do. But there was still a little bit of a gap, I mean, between reading those magazines in Hong Kong and and getting to France. Tell us how you got to France and initially got your start, which put you on the radar for, for Cofidis in 1997. I, I mean, it wasn't actually that much of a gap uh, from when I was did that first mountain bike race and introducing that first cellophane-wrapped Velenews to being pro was probably four years. Um, uh, I just... So my mum and dad were divorced. So I'd spend my 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 school life in Hong Kong and in my school holidays. I'd fly back to the UK and spend time with my mum. But my mum had moved house since I'd left, so I didn't know anybody. And she knew I was getting into this my new my latest little craze, which was cycling. So she joined like joined me into the local cycling club and to give me something to do. And I went there and did time trials and races, and I was. I loved it. I mean, I worked. I just, that was my, I had these alter ego. I had my Hong Kong kind of arty cool kid and my school holiday kid was bike racer. And bike racer kid was much better than arty kid in Hong Kong. And so I won races and just in, in micro blocks and they put me on the national team. And when it came to finishing school in Hong Kong, and this would be 1995, and I was going to go to art college in the UK, in England. And I didn't, I knew that I wasn't that good at art. I knew I was really good at racing bikes. And so I asked my mum, can I, can I do the bike racing thing? And she said, yeah, you can, but write to the, the college and defer your place by one year and go and get a job. So I got a job at a supermarket stacking shelves at night. And I wrote letters to loads of people and eventually somebody gave me a place in a club in France called VC Saint-Quentin and uh, I I earned money over the winter stacking shelves and then in February of 1996 I I had enough money to buy a, a crappy little car and drove out to the north of France 
and went to this little cycling club called VC Sunken Tan and started racing. And I started winning races. And Cyril Guimard came and took me out for lunch and signed me up to Coffee So signing up for Coffee now give me your version of that first encounter with Bobby. What happened at that yeah. uh, at that service course for the first time you met Bobby? I'm curious what your uh, version is. So I remember vividly being so in August in 1995, oh, September 1995, I found out it was I'd, I'd already decided to go for coffees. And then Lance Armstrong was world number one at the time. He just won the San Sebastian. And he was kind of, he was the coolest kid in the block. And it was Motorola, all the cool kids from Motorola. It was Bobby, Frank Andrew, Kevin Livingston, it was Lance. And they were the only Anglophones in the sport, really. And so I got to Cofferty's kind of on a, on a wig and a prayer because of Cyril Guimard. So when in September, I was in, or October, I was in Hong Kong, visiting all my friends, having done that kind of block. And, and I found out that Lance had signed with the Motorola crew we're going to Cofferty's. I was like, holy crap, <laughs> this is insanely cool. And so when I was, when I turned up to, and I, I can still kind of remember being in the, the offices, the warehouse, and, and I had these frizzly hair, and I think I was wearing glasses, and the Motorola crew, Motorola crew came in, and I was like, this is what I want. This is, I was, just loved it. And I met Bobby, and everyone kind of took the mickey out of me, and And it was, they were just a bunch of Americans. And it was, I, I still got great memories of kind of encountering the whole Motorola crew kind of coming to Cofferty's because I hadn't signed up for that. And when they came, I, I was like, this is going to be fun. And let's let's yeah. just say it was a little bit different mentality between the American Motorola team and then getting there to, to Cofferty's, you know, like the... I remember our our energy drink was uh, Ciro, you know the the little fruit fruit <laughs> or, syrup, pat to fruit, you know like yogurt and apple tarts <laughs> as recovery food, and we we're just sitting there going like, what yeah. what the heck? Yeah. But you you mentioned something you know about being in art school in Hong Kong, like when we moved in together, I remember um, all of a sudden you had like a palette. Like, you know, you, you were off or on, you know, it was bike racing or if it was, I think it was the PlayStation we had, but then, you know, you were, you were very cerebral too. Like you read books and then one day you pulled out this pad or I came back from training and you were like drawing and I was like blown away of your artistic talent. You said that you weren't a very good artist, but I would have to say that, uh, you are very much so. And, you know, through the years, of being a biker for so long there was very few people that had that artistic talent i know that you know taylor finney de um, developed the same sort of interest in art tj eisenhart is is a very very talented artist and i recently found out that andreas clear of all people is <laughs> like a very very good yeah. artist what 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 was it that you know, was that a stress relief for you? Because I mean, I only saw that little pamphlet mm -hmm. or what do you call that big book with the the pages um, uh, that artists have that they draw on mm -hmm. um, my wife's sketchbook. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe <laughs> a sketchbook. But um, do, do you still uh, dabble in uh, mm -hmm. in sketching? No, I, I, I don't probably. I mean, I, 
so I guess I, I'm sort of the opposite to Taylor and TJ and Andreas in that I, I am very good at drawing what I see. I don't, I'm not very, I'm not a very good artist. And that was always my insecurity. And my, what I love, I, I, I enjoy writing. I loved bike racing because it felt so artistic. And I, even in my first, ooh, within a year or so, with Cyril Guimard, and you'll know this, Bob, you hung out with me. Everyone's like, oh, David L'Artiste. L'Artiste. <laughs> he's, like, he's uh, so unpredictable. He's all over the place. And so I was, I guess my life was always more kind of artistic. And, but, and, and Jens, you'll know this. And here, I can still remember the first time I met Jens. And it was 1997 Midi Libre. And you were still on the, the German team, kind of German Aussie team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. ZVZ and, and Giant. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the yeah, Australians. And you're, yeah, and you were in Midi Libre and you were just already ripping it up there. And this was the kind of, this is where I used to rip up races, but I couldn't, I raced too hard like the artist and always have to stop the last day. And the last day of Midi Libre in 1997, I remember being in the brew wagon with um, Neil Stevens. Steve-O. Oh, Steve-O. <laughs> and so, you know, I've got, all, I've got all these vivid memories of kind of us in those early days. But uh, but going back to my my art thing, it was never just the, the drawing. The drawing for me was always a, a doodling and a skate, Bobby. It was, I kind of could never get my head around everything that was going on. And it was my little escape, but I'd never considered it art. Uh, cycling for me was the greatest vehicle and I miss it terribly now having that that output because bike racing for me was was a huge output which I didn't appreciate at the time you know you just brought back these uh, memories uh, uh, to me like us English speaking I consider myself a, a German but English speaking we were exotic creatures at the beginning of our yeah. careers right like <laughs> there was like like one in every French team maybe or, or uh, um, teams like you know after this air they would have Jan Kiersipu you know back in the days and that's it uh, we, would have, we were unicorns yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah we were not many <laughs> but, but, and that's why we always Jens, like got together at Jens, the races if if you look back how good we were because and and this is you you have this um this in the in the british cycling scene it's called the foreign legion and we kind of talk about this this bunch of anglo-saxons that infiltrated the euro scene and but all of us, and I'd say that's probably, it stopped about 10 years ago. But in order to survive as an Anglo-Saxon, an Anglophone within the Euro scene, you had to be a little bit eccentric and a little bit mad. It's kind of because you wouldn't, you were never going to be let in. So you had to find your own way of doing it. And then you'd, that's why you were saying we'd, we'd then become friends. Remember the Toulouse crew? You go to Nice, there'd be Girona, be the Tuscany crew. There'd be these little kind of ghettos of Anglo-Saxon riders, either on teams or in locations. And it was it was super cool. But it would be, oh, the Aussies are there, the Americans are there, the the, the well, the English and Scottish were a bit weird and scattered everywhere. But there weren't there wasn't a critical mass. It was always random individuals who, in order to accomplish what we did during that time you had to be a complete outlier like a complete outlier and that came with it pro came with its pros and cons because it in order to to survive you had to to have a strength of character which often could 
go either way. But it, I, I kind of miss that. I think it's like really cool that we did that and and we we survived it. It and, it, it was far more than than just a job, right? Back then, it was far more than just counting calories and watts and heart rates. It was <sighs> just a survival. Uh, how do you say a uh, hot baguette in French? Uh, Yeah. Du baguette show, you know, uh, du thé, s'il vous plaît. You know, like, just like the daily adventure just to buy your grocery, you know, it was the whole package. And really, if we're allowed to blow our own trumpet here a little bit, we did pave the way for the kids these days. Yeah. You know, we made their life yeah. a little easier. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a prime example. It's like, well, eight years, it was Luke Crow. He was a lovely, lovely guy. I love him. And we were in the Peloton and he asked me, Hey, Dave, Dave, how do you say baguette in French? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, but, but it's true, and it was, it was that kind of... The reason I fell in love with pro cycling when I lived in Hong Kong was because it was exotic. It was... The, nobody knew about it. It was rebellious. I'd have to learn a foreign language. I'd have to... I'd never seen mountains, let alone raced up mountains. To imagine a sport where it would last weeks, not days, to I, I, for me it was so it was like the foreign it was like the foreign it was like going and just doing something where you could disappear and, and become something else and and so that was why and I think many of us and I think you as well Jens from your background and even Bobby from his background I mean to think that any Americans in the the 1990s would think that. It was a good idea to become a professional cyclist in Europe. That's an insanity because it was just like, it was a, it's a tiny little niche, old fashioned sport. There's no glamour. There's no celebrity. There's relatively no money. You did it out of love. You did it out of adventure. It was just pure adventure. And that's why I did it. And then all the different stuff comes along and you get mixed up in it. But I, I think, Bobby, I'll ask you a question. Why the hell did you get into it? Man, um, I've thought about that a lot. I mean, obviously, I grew up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which was right in between Aspen and Vail, which have a very strong European influence. My dad worked up there as a UPS driver, and he'd go around to all the bike shops and the ski shops and um, Alexi Graywall, who won the Olympics in 1984, his father owned a shop up there and my dad would constantly just kind of pick his brain. But I tell you, I, I liked riding bikes with my buddies. Like you said, BMX, like little dirt jumps out in the back, back 40. But, um, I remember my dad turned on ABC wide world of sports and they were showing Perry Roubaix and these guys were riding their bikes over the cobblestones and the mud And all of a sudden, they pan to like a, a breakaway, and there was all these names, and there was this one guy named Greg Lamond, and he had an American flag right by his name. And I said, oh, that must be a mistake, because Lamond, that's not a, an American name. But I don't know what it was. Right then and there, when I saw that little American flag beside Greg LeMond's name at Peru Bay, which was a race that I had no idea about, there was something that clicked. And, you know, destiny, you, you often talk about it, you think about it. But for me, it, it was right then and there. I mean, I grew up in a perfect time 
in Colorado. There was a lot of cycling. We had the World Championships. We had the Course Classic. Alexi Graywall was our neighbor. It just all of a sudden looked so glamorous. And, you know, like you said, it isn't as glamorous as you thought. But at the same time, it was exciting, you know, traveling all over the world, learning a new language or languages, um, checking in and out of hotel rooms. It was, it was, I, I, I wish I could put my finger on it because I was the only one in my valley, um, a few guys race bikes and, and, and made it, um, later on, you know, after the Olympic training center days, but you're right. I think it's just <clears throat> something that you're, you're born with. And, you know, you mentioned rebellion, um, you know, what, what what was I rebelling against? I, 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 I don't know, but I had this energy and knowing you, Jens, and you, David, you guys had the same energy. Like it was something that if we didn't put this in a constructive way, get it out, you know, through physical effort, maybe we would have gone down a, a, a different road. And we each, you know, through our lives had different paths where, you know, we took the wrong path. But at the same time, like, it was it was a release in a in a good way and you know I, to this day um i use my bike as as just a relaxation tool i mean for so so long we used it as a a way to get better a way to perform a way to you know get a better contract or to save our contract but now to me it's just it's just relaxation it's bliss it's fun you're hanging out with your buddies it's social and I don't know why I started. I don't know why I'm still doing it, but it's just in us, I think. Yeah. And just on this, because this is the question I was asked in my year out, because I, I, I've had the great fortune to work with Dr. Steve Peters on and off. Um, he wrote The Chimp Paradox. For great guy. That, uh, well, you, yeah, you know him, Bobby, from your sky days. Um, and... I was going through quite a, a deep phase, a dark phase in my first year out. And I spoke to him and we, we had a couple of conversations. He asked me this question. He said, David, what do you miss? What do you miss? And can I ask both of you what you, if you do, what do you miss about pro bike racing? I miss uh, two things. I miss waking up in the morning and go, I am unbeatable. I am motherfucking Jens Vogt. <laughs> Nothing is gonna go wrong today. And I this the superior fitness of being, hey, I am on top of the world. And I miss the camaraderie with the boys, the road trip, yeah. the like training camps, living three weeks in the team bus, more or less, you know, sharing jokes, crashing together in the races, laughing together, winning together, going down together, you know, all of it. You know, it's like this team bus is like you live in a submarine for three weeks and you don't know nothing about the world outside. You live from day to day, from stage to stage. I, I do like this simple life, the focus on one thing and be the best you can at one thing. Mm. So the fitness and the camaraderie, these are the two things I miss. What about you, Bobby? Um, I'd, I'd have to say the, the, the camaraderie as well, but luckily... Uh, moving here to Greenville, South Carolina five years ago, uh, I've got my buddies again. I got George Hincapie and Christian Vanneveld and, and our crew. And, and 
kind of emulate what what we used to do all at a very truncated level you know we're not going out and doing six or eight hours and doing recons and of of mountains and pave sections and stuff like that but to me i'm very happily retired and for the first couple years you you thought about gosh you know every time a team time trial comes on tv uh or you know like a a final gc coming down to the wire you were like oh man but man now that I know how hard it was to get to that level, I don't miss the actual racing. But yeah, for, for a couple of years, especially until I moved here, that seeing your buddies and just shoot shooting the crap and, and, and having fun. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're not 25 anymore. Mm. I mean, you mm. recently had a birthday and um, sorry, I belatedly wished you a happy birthday, but I wrote you something on Instagram, like you're still 19, right? Like that's how I remember you. Yeah. And you're like, uh, no. <laughs> no, I feel a lot older than 19. I, I, that's one of my, my things as well, I guess, is that, uh, and I'll just answer because I was answering rhetorically, but also, so it's exactly what I think most of us answer regards when you ask that question, what do you miss? Mine was camaraderie my team i miss my team and and then much like you're saying jens start lines and finish lines it was kind of that was you kind of you spend the majority of your adulthood basing your whole existence on start lines and finish lines mm -hmm. and then the people you share that journey yeah. with. actually and now so, if we go to the start lines you know yeah. what i also miss that yeah. i be at the start line and somebody from a sprinter team comes to me and you can see him already shaking in fear, going, um, Jens, is today one of these days where you want to go? I'm, I'm sorry to say, yes, I am going to go. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the, the sprinter sent somebody, hey, yeah. ask Fook if he wants to go. And I, yep, yeah. I am. Yeah. Today, yes. That, that's something yeah. I missed. It's a special moment where they, like, you can yeah. see like a little bit that their, their, their panic in their eyes go, please say no, please say no. I go, um, I'm sorry, today is one of these days. Yeah. I... I Oh, just actually, because I remember the 2011 Giro d'Italia. Was it 2011? Yeah, it was 2011. And I used to train with Michael Barry um, and over the winter. So we used to always just meet like 5Ks from where I live now on our training rides over the winter. He'd talk nonstop, bless him. That's why I loved him, because I could didn't have to talk the whole ride. And we'd do these lovely big rides. And But then we'd race. He was on different, we were on different teams. And at the Giro, we turned up there. And I, I'd tend to pick days where I'd want to win. And I'd be kind of very focused on those and I'd act differently on those days. And I think it was stage four or five uh, of the Giro. And it was the first time that uh, Castelli had done the whole kind of speed suit, kind of San Remo suit. And I felt a bit of a loser wearing it. And so I kind of, but I, I wore it because I was like, you know, what? I want to try and win today. I'm going to wear this and nobody will notice. So I turned up to the back when everyone's in this, this piazza and in, in this little italian village and um, because i didn't turn up the village i just didn't want anyone to see me in this super aero suit and i had all the tech on and the bike was all set up and i turned up the back and michael was there and michael was like oh jesus christ what are you wearing <laughs> and, I, and i was like i know he's like you're gonna win today and i was like and i, I just remember pausing and looking and there was like 200 cyclists in front of me and and i thought and i looked at him and i said yeah, I'm going to try and win today. And they're just the realizing that I got to beat 200 of you to do this. 
and I got second on the day, and it was this is a whole different story. But but that was that's what professional bike racing was like. And then then looping back, Bobby, to kind of where I am now, and I don't. When I turned I turned forty five last week, and I'm not one of those people that goes, oh, I feel twenty seven, twenty eight. I was like, Jesus Christ, I feel sixty eight, sixty nine. <laughs> it's kind of I I've lived a life less ordinary and got to experience so much for better and worse. And I, I'm very thankful for that, but I'm also quite looking forward to the time where I can just be 68, 69 or 70. And I know that's a bad thing to say, but it would, uh, I've, I've accumulated probably a bit too many experiences for my little head to, to, to deal with. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus for less than a dollar a week. You can get a hard copy of Valley News magazine, choose two books a year from VeloPress, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Peloton Magazine, and Backpacker. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value every year in one $99 subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com slash outside plus and enter Bobby Jens 25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and you make a good deal great. And now back to our chat with David. I got to go back to two things. A, Yenzi, I know two things that you missed that you didn't mention. Free coffee in the bus and free yogurt at the at the dessert table. <laughs> that is so true, I, yes. Now that you have to pay for those, I'm sure, sure that you, you miss them as well. Um, but David, you know... It's very well documented, um, you know, what our generation of cyclists went through. Decisions that we had to make, bridges that we had to cross, lines that we had to cross. But one of the, the most, I guess, complimentary things that I can say about calling you a, a friend and knowing you was, you know, there was the suspension. We all know about that. You've been very transparent, open, and honest about that. But I'm curious to hear about those two years that you had away from the sport and then coming back into the sport. You know, everybody loved you. Everybody respected you. But, you know, British cycling at that time, you know, didn't really rehabilitate people that made mistakes and you seem to really man up and transform and then became one of the best road captains, the best teammates, the best advocacy advocate for, for clean sport that I think we've ever seen. What was that process of absorbing um, what you learned and, and that turned you into the human being the the husband, the father of three, and and really still such a well respected voice in the sport of cycling. Uh, th thank you, Bobby. That's already the lovely the way to 
kind of introduce all of that. I suppose um, when I was, I was, what, it was 2004, so I was 27, I was reigning world champion when I got arrested and uh, admitted to all the stuff I'd done. And, and in hindsight, I was still a super kid. And I was still that 19-year-old kid you'd met. And I lost everything in a, in a heartbeat. And, and I hated the sport at the time because I'd, so, I'd been so determined to do things right. And you, you knew me. I was so naive and I was so driven that I could do it all the right way. And I, I, I was filled with the shame that I gave in and, and I went to, for once for a better term, the dark side. And that really it ate into me. I, I didn't handle it well because I knew I cheated. I knew I not only cheated other people, I cheated myself. And so when I was banned, um, to be honest, that first, those first few months, I was like, I'm gone. I'm never going back to that sport. It's a, it, it turned me into somebody that I never wanted to be or never thought I'd become. But then about like eight months in or 10 months in, and I'd gone pretty deep, um, I started to kind of come out of this stupor. And I was on a two-year ban. Nobody had ever been banned for two years at that point. It was six month, six month maximum or nothing. So I, I kind of took, the, took it on the chin for the sport, um, which was good in a way. And I came and I thought, you know what? I've got a huge opportunity here now. Maybe... I can go back in and fix this. I can, this isn't, maybe this is for a reason that I can stop what happened to me happening to another me. And so that was my mission. I thought I gotta, I'm gonna go back in. I'm gonna find redemption. I never said it was redemption at the time. It was only in Captain Hindsight would say it was redemption. At the time I thought, no, I'm just gonna go back and prove it's possible to do it clean and win the biggest bike races. And also I'm gonna talk about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that that 19 year old me will hear somebody say, you don't need to inject yourself. You don't need to take drugs to win the biggest bike races. And I went onto the World Anti-Doping Agency. I wrote to the UCI. I, I became the longest serving athlete on the, the Athletes Commission for WADA. I, wrote my book, I did like endless interviews, because all of that, because I thought, you know what, I can make a difference. And that was my whole mission in that second part of my career. And and I think now looking back, I did make a difference. I introduced the no needle policy. I basically was the voice of the peloton for nearly a decade. I did all those different things. And it was only to make sure that that 19 year old me didn't have to do what I did, because it, it was avoidable. And God knows what I'd have accomplished if if I hadn't done what I'd done. And, you know, I live with all those things. It's not it's not good, you know. It still weighs heavily on me. And I'm still filled with shame and regret. But I try I've tried my best to fix it. You definitely did have an influence. I mean, I was there. Um, I saw it, you know, and when and, and <clears throat> you come back and the way you handled it, hey, man, for me, always my deepest respect. And hey, you're still a friend. Whatever happens, I couldn't care less, man. You're still David Miller, my friend, and um, that won't change. So yes, you definitely did make a difference. But to go a little more light now, what would be your best memory out of these days? 
it doesn't have to be a win. It could be a win, of course. It could be something else. A kid was yelling at you or whatever, how you met your wife, whatever is your, what is you your best what? memory you know, there? I'll give, you, I'll give you a light moment. This was the World Series Spaniard and probably around 2009 or 10. And it, the Vuelta was great. I loved the Vuelta. It was always my favorite race because most bike racers would do well at Tour de France and not want to go to the Vuelta. I loved the Vuelta because I could go there and race my bike and win a stage. And, you know, you could have a bottle of wine at night and it was cool and it was chilled and there was no media pressure. And we were there with uh, our kind of Garmin team, which was our dream team at the time. Zabriskie, VDV, Tyler, Julian Dean, that whole crew. And in the final week, Zabriskie and I, we were, at, I think it was in the third week, and we'd had, we'd drunk some wine at dinner, and we were laughing at the fact that teams do two up attacks. And I was like, Dave, we're going to do a two up attack tomorrow. I, we've got to do it. We're going to do it. And so Terpstra, Terpstra, who was like the kind of the, the antichrist of the peloton, like it was like, <laughs> It was like everybody hated Terpstra. So Terpstra was off the front and he had a big gap. And, and there was on these big welter kind of rolling roads. And I went back and I said to Dave, we're going to do the two-up attack. And he was like, oh, no, we're not, are we? And I was like, yeah, we are. I was like, and so we literally just wound it up and me and him went. And we bridged like two minutes up to Terpstra. And we were like five minutes up the road by the end, and like it was one of those days. But then we realized that we were both exhausted, and the peloton was coming in hot. And and, and Dave said to me, "Dude, I, I I can't do it anymore." And I was like, you, "Come on, just sit on." He's like, "I can't." And that was the last. And he just disappeared. And then. I hung on for as long as possible with Terpstra. We hit up this steep climb and Terpstra dropped me and it was just, a, it was a horrible day of shame. Terpstra just made us look like idiots. And I got to the finish and I was there at the bus, just like literally almost collapsed on the floor because it had been such a stupidly hard day. And everyone's like, where's Dave? Where's Dave? What, we didn't see him, did he make it? And I was like, what? <laughs> so he dropped, got dropped. Apparently when he pulled off, he went into a driveway and went in into somebody's garden and hid until the peloton went by and then came back out and joined back and just didn't even join back on the peloton, just rode back in on his own. And I was like, dude, this is the, we're never doing a two up tack again. And it was, that that was kind of one of my, like, I love those days where you just did stupid stuff that made no sense and the dinner table in the evening, it was just hilarious because it was classic Zabriskie. It was hid in the drive and made a fool of all of us yeah so days like that yeah man there there one of the coolest things um was after i retired i was working for another team and we shared the same hotel on the rest day i think it was before the 2014 final time or one of the time trials like down in the south of france and um that was the day that everyone was stressing about changing bicycles from you know starting with a with the road bike and then going to the time trial trial bike or vice versa and i was with bmc and we had cadell and and marco Pinotti and just a bunch of like guys that really wanted to tj van garderen really wanted to take it seriously and uh we spend the whole day out there like testing where we're going to change the bike how we're going to do it how efficiently we're going to do it and i get back to the hotel just absolutely rooted and i look out my window and I see two guys that are obviously cyclists because of the, 
the the tan lines oh, and i look a little pool. closer and it's you and Ryder heisdahl like oh, down like <laughs> sit sitting sit, sitting down like in your swim trunks by the pool and i'm like what the heck and i go down there and you guys had the best rest day i think you could possibly qualify in you know in the tour de france there there was a couple beer cans nearby it was just like yeah man it's a rest day like why are you guys out training on the rest day and right then and there i said you know what it's so cool to see david like actually enjoying cycling again yeah. like you know we used to take ourselves so darn serious and everything had to be you know, if you're standing, you should be sitting. And if you're sitting, you should be laying down. Hey, lay down by the pool, right? <laughs> like, oh, what? God. That's, I still remember that day vividly. And it's this rider and I just watching you guys. And we, we even coined, like, BMC, big money, C-U-N-T's. <laughs> we were like, look at the beer, big money. And we were just swanning there. I mean, we were doing terribly. But <laughs> that was after he'd won the Giro. Yeah, that was a... That was one of the best race days of my career. We just sat by the pool, lay by the pool all day, hiding cans of beer from people. <laughs> yeah. I guess... While everyone else is at work. <laughs> I guess every now and then you just need to let the hair down, eh? It's just normal. It's just human. It's all good. <laughs> oh, my God. The good old days. But yeah. And I think, that, I mean, but just going into that, I think we, from our generation, we were the last of the generation where you could occasionally let your hair down. It's when I see the, it's so incredible what they're doing now. It's just, I can't even fathom it. It's almost as if we thought we were pros. We were actually just the last of the amateurs because this whole new generation, are, are, they're, they're ripping the rule book up. They're, they're physically just so much stronger. They're mentally tougher. They're, they're more astute racing wise. And it's kind of nice because even, but that that's the kind of, that's that's the rule of life, isn't it? You always think you're the best in your generation, but then the next generation just comes along and just makes a mockery of you. Because our generation, from the early 2000s, we thought we were so far advanced and kind of compared to the, the previous decades. And then a decade later or 15 years later, you see them, they must look back at us and go, God, you guys were in the dark ages. <laughs> and to be frank, we were in comparison to what they're doing now I, and I, I i love it i love the way the sport's going now it's so cool yeah i have to say i mean we we both retired in 2014 right the same year yeah, yeah. so yeah. even in my last one or two years or three years of my career i i often in interviews i said look i, I do feel like a dinosaur i feel like mm -hmm. i'm just about to extinct my type of rider there's no need for me anymore somebody that races just with guts and instinct you know it is mm. no need for, uh, anymore. They need. No. They would. They mm. would love the power I could provide, but yeah. at the moment they tell me I've, to, not when I wanted to. So, just like you say, we thought yeah. we were great and professional back then. Mm. Nothing compared to today. But I'm also happy that I'm retired back in the old days. I remember in 2014, Jens, in Bayern Rundfahrt, there was a rainy day, and we were talking, and obviously we'd raced together since. 1997 and both in that final year and both tired and i was having one of my philosophical discourses on the fact that i think i'd used up all of my my suffer credits because <laughs> and my theory being that 
in those final two years, I couldn't hurt myself anymore. And whereas for the majority of my career, I loved, and this is a, this is a really interesting dichotomy and it's kind of linguistic in the sense that you use suffering or hurting. Now, I loved hurting myself because it would make other people suffer. But the moment it felt like I was suffering, I wasn't in control. And this was the thing where it really hit me. And I was having that conversation. I, I'm sure we've got it because I was wearing a microphone for time trial. I wish we could find it. About this idea, I think I used up all my hurt credits. Now all I get is suffering. And and that's when that's when I realized I had to stop because I, I couldn't do it anymore. And that's a really interesting phenomena regards being a pro cyclist. The best they, that we often say uh, is the one who can suffer the most. No, it's not. It's the one who can hurt themselves the most. And by hurting yourself a lot, you make other people suffer. Now, the moment that coin flips, you got to get out. And it's it's a really interesting kind of thing that I'd, I'd, I must write an essay about it one time because I think it's such an interesting concept. That that is an amazing, yeah, amazing concept. But but yeah. you know we're getting a little bit short here on time. But uh, talking about you know retiring and and changing focus. What are you? What is what is David Miller up to now? I mean, it just seems like I see you everywhere. You know, you're you're. You're a video journalist or, you know, a commentator for, for what is it, ITV. Mm. You have Chapter 3 uh, clothing brand. Tell mm. us a little bit about what you're up to now and what, what's going to be going on in the future. Uh, I mean, the biggest one for me, I suppose, is the family because I, I had kids late. So my kids are 10, 8, and 6. And so that's been kind of really back-ended. Uh, and amazing but then parallel to that when I stopped racing in 2014 was my final year I realized that when I was, I was 37 and I thought Jesus if I'm fortunate I've still got another I'm ha not even halfway through and it's probably better to kind of build something that can go the distance and so chapter 3 was the idea because everyone kept asking me well what's the next chapter and that's where going back to the art thing, I thought, well, I, I've learned so much. How can I transfer all that, all the creative I've always had and all this technical and all these lovely things, and all the people I've met into a brand, into a company that can, that can do, create different products and a different idea for cycling. And so chapter three is my big project is to create like the first, like the first cycling brand that transcends categories, that, that becomes the kind of like a Lululemon did for yoga, like Arcteryx, like North Face, kind of so chapter three in a few years becomes the brand that is synonymous with cycling, but you don't have to own a bike to use it because we've made cycling inclusive, aspirational and cool and technical. Now we're still in the early days of that, but it's that's, that's my magnum opus for quite a long time will be chapter three is building this company and brand. And it's starting to happen. And it's, I'm, that's, I love it. I, I truly love it because I'm building something that's, that's kind of in an ascending spiral, ascending spiral. Whereas me, the cyclist is, will always be a descending spiral. It's, it's a depreciating asset. Me as a cyclist. Chapter three, the brand is a, is an ascending spiral. It's an appreciating asset. And so 
that's that's my that's what I'll be doing for quite a long time, Bobby. Fantastic. That's pretty good. I mean, that's good that you find like this, uh, you know, new challenge. And I love the way you describe it. Like, mm. are you a deep thinker? <laughs> you are. Eh? <laughs> it's my, it's Have my you been listening favorite. to the podcast, Jensi? I mean, yes, th yes, this yes. This guy's got it. Yeah. This guy's got it. I know. I mean, yeah. he, he, he put us to shame with the, yeah. the deep thoughts that, that goes through old Davy's head. Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse, Jens. The old deep thinking. It's, um, but yeah, you just ride that roller coaster, don't you? Yeah, I guess. And hope for the best. Yeah. Well, it, it has been a roller coaster, but I think you, are, you, you learn just as much from the downs as you do the ups. And you're, you're a complete person now. You're a husband, father, ex-cyclist, and, and a great friend. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. There, there are so many more things that we'd like to ask you. So you're going to have to come on in a couple months and kind of give us an update on, on how Chapter 3 is doing and all your other little things, talk about your kids again. Um, but honestly, David, it, it's been phenomenal catching up with you again and, and hope that you'll, you'll join us on Bobby and Jens in the future for another episode. I'd love to. Thank you for having me, guys. It's, uh, it's an honor and it's good to catch back up again. Missed you guys. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to David for being our guest. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please give us a five-star review and make sure to share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mossa. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and please share your cycling stories with us.